0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia Pacific region. When Robert Clive, the man who established company rule in India, was hauled in front of Parliament to answer accusations of corruption, he allegedly responded by saying, essentially, that he could have been worse. Quote, Am I not rather deserving of praise for the moderation which marked my proceedings? Consider the situation in which the victory at Plassey had placed me. A great prince was dependent on my pleasures, an opulent city lay at my mercy, its richest bankers bid against each other for my smiles. I walked through vaults which were thrown open to me alone, piled on either hand with gold and jewels. Mr. Chairman, at this moment I stand astonished at my own moderation. The strange thing is that Clive's argument was actually acceptable, according to how many at the time understood corruption. As Nicholas Hoover Wilson writes, in Modernity's Corruption, Empire and Morality in the Making of British India published by columbia university press wilson uses company rule in india as a way to examine how society's view of corruption changed from something governed by one situation to a behavior that violates some universal code of ethics nicholas hoover wilson is a professor of sociology at stony brook university nick's research focuses on the historical sociology of empires and colonialism through the case of the english east india trading company's presence in south asia Today, the two of us talk about Clive, company rule, and why this period is a good way through which to understand the idea of corruption. So, Nick, I maybe want to start with the history to kind of set the scene for um, your examination and kind of, kind of our conversation about the different ways to understand corruption. Um, so, you're writing. About the time of the East India Company and around kind of people like Robert Clive, who I think is a historical figure who um, has been closely tied to the idea of corruption and you closely tied to the changing ways we understand corruption. But what's actually going on? in this period of time in India and with the East India Company?
0: Well, I think that's a fantastic way to to set the scene. Uh, So the East India Company was a joint stock trading company formed in 1600 uh, in then England. And it existed in uh, one form form or another all the way down uh, to the middle of the 19th century. So around 1860. And uh, what I find so fascinating about it is that it made a transition from being a largely commercial joint stock corporation. So you could buy a share in the East India Company, um, and it it, uh, was largely commercial in the sense that it was constituted in order to trade goods uh, and do speculative trading in uh, South Asia generally. Now, around the middle of the 18th century, and in particular uh, after the Seven Years' War from 1756 to 1763, uh, which in the United States where I am uh, is often referred to as the French and Indian War, uh, but in the aftermath of that war... um, a process of the east india company beginning to transition from a largely commercial entity over to what we would call a modern state began to accelerate so Um, Even though it was a commercial entity beginning a little bit before the Seven Years' War, it was minting its own coinage, it had its own army, and it was increasingly getting involved in the politics of the dominant political organization in what's now modern India, which was the Mughal Empire. And... As this transition happened and the company began to militarize more and more and get more and more involved in Mughal and post-Mughal politics... Uh, administrators within the East India Company, these people would begin as uh, the, the bottom line uh, entry level position in the East India Company was called a writer. The reason that they were called writers was because they, their job was literally to transcribe documents uh, for, for uh, commercial documents to send back home and so on and so forth. But as this militarization happens, as the East India Company gets more involved in Mughal politics, they start, uh, in essence, farming out their army, using it as a kind of mercenary army for hire, for different claimants to uh, positions within the Mughal imperial hierarchy, And they do this. The French, who also have an East India company, are doing this as well. And as this competition accelerates on the subcontinent, it throws the political and commercial order in the area into chaos. Now, why is Robert Clive important in this story? Well, he began as a writer in the East India Company, and he ended up transferring over to the EIC's military arm and becomes uh, very successful as a soldier and rises through the ranks. And as he rises through the ranks, begins getting uh, state-like concessions from the Mughal emperor. One of these ends up being uh, tax administration rights for Bengal, Bihar, and Orissa, which are all states on the eastern coast of the Indian subcontinent. But he also gets a personal uh, prebendal annuity. Basically, they take the the uh, tax output from a, a set of villages just outside of Calcutta, and they assign it to Clive personally as a sort of thank you gift for helping uh for helping a claimant to the Mughal throne succeed. And this, uh, so what Clive does is he takes all this money, and this is the equivalent to to a, a just stupendously large fortune. He takes this money back to Britain and he uses it to get involved in politics. And one of the reasons that this is so important is that the East India Company has a monopoly for its trade and increasingly its state-like imperial control of India. The East India Company is allowed to trade there. No one else is allowed to trade there. And that is uh, granted by the Parliament ultimately and the British crown. And so one of the reasons Clive gets involved and intertwined with British politics using this giant new fortune that he got is in order to protect his fortune and protect what he perceives to be the interests of the company. Now, why is this so closely tied with the idea of why is all of this so closely tied with the idea of corruption? Well, it's because, from a modern perspective, sitting here today, we look at someone like Clive and say, "How could this man possibly think that what he was doing wasn't corrupt? To accept this very large prebendal annuity, to intertwine his own uh, the interest in his own fortunes with the fate of the company, and on and on and on." This looks obviously like a horrible conflict of interest to us today. This would uh, run afoul of so many standing corruption statutes today. And so I was looking at his biography, and what was surprising to me was not just that he thought that he was not corrupt, but also... A lot of people within the East India Company thought he was not corrupt. In fact, once he comes back and gets intertwined with Parliament in the way that he does, the East India Company board of directors send him back out to India as an anti-corruption crusader. At the same time all of this is happening, in turn, there are a bunch of people who are shut out of the East India Company's monopoly who begin using a much more uh, recognizably modern language of corruption to criticize what Robert Cl- who Robert Clive is, what he's about, and the larger direction of the East India Company. So... Who was Robert Clive? Well, he's this important symbol, I think, over the course of his biography of what I call the the shift to a modern idea of what corruption is. And so the heart of the book, in my view, is is trying to provide a kind of account for how we get to the modern world where we think of corruption in the way that we do. And I use Robert Clive and the the story of the East India Company in this period as a, a an account of that transition
1: there's a there's a great quote that may or may not (laughs) have been said by clive um, that 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 i want to bring up but but before we do that i do want to talk about or ask about these two different views of what corruption is um the first being i guess the universal view which i think is closer to our modern understanding of corruption and then the situational view Um, And I wonder if you could take some time just to explain, I guess, what these two views of corruption are and and how they're different.
0: Yeah, of course. So we're used in, in the modern world, as modern people as we are, we're used to thinking about corruption in terms of the violation of some kind of universal rule that is attached to behavior in some kind of space that we imagine to be universal. Now, that sounds really abstract, but it ties to something really concrete. So when we're engaging in what we think of as uh, behavior in a market, where we're buying and selling goods, when we're pricing things, and so on and so forth, there are rules to how a market is quote-unquote supposed to operate. Uh, One of these rules, for example, is um, don't lie about the quality of your goods, right? Which is to say don't commit fraud. And uh, something that I think is relatively modern is the idea that those rules should be absolutely universal and apply to any market anywhere. That is a little bit different than the situational understanding, which really depends on a deep knowledge of the particular circumstances in particular places. To continue with the idea of markets, the, the, the thought here is that a situational understanding of, uh, of corruption in market behavior might be, well, your family and my family have been doing business forever forever. Uh, for as long as any of us can remember, we have built up these relationships together, we know that there are particular risks and particular customs in this particular market, and even though... You, we both know that this is the case, you are choosing to still let your greed get the better of you in this particular circumstance. And so even though I can't point to an abstract and universal rule of how you should be behaving in any kind of market, instead, what I can point to is our history and this particular local circumstance and how uh, custom figures into how people ought to behave here. So, My point in the book, and and the sort of the main sort of uh, theoretical point that I want to make, is that uh, what I call modernity's corruption is the shift of us thinking about the nature of what corruption is, from the loss of balance in these more, uh, the loss of balance among a bunch of competing impulses in these more situational circumstances to thinking about corruption with reference to these abstract and universal moral spaces, like the market, like the public interest, and so on and so on.
1: So... I want to bring up this 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 quote from from Clive, which I mean I've not is one of these things maybe he's allegedly said or something, um, but where he kind of in front of a parliamentary committee, where he says, "Am I not rather deserving of praise for the moderation which marked my proceedings?" Um, you know, he talks about how everyone was giving him money and says, "Mr. Chairman, at this moment I stand astonished on my own moderation." Um, is that supposed to be kind of symbolic of the? I guess of this more situational view of what corruption is, is in like, I was in a situation where I could have been much greedier and the fact that I wasn't shows that I am in fact not corrupt.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. And even though I'm in, I actually just got back from some archival work at the national library of Wales, which is where Clive's papers are. Um, and I, I, I could not find that quote, but that's actually okay. Historically, because he's, he, did certainly say very, very similar stuff. I, I, I sort of set the scene uh, with that because it's such a sort of historically well-known and dramatic uh, uh, example. But you're exactly right that it is an example of this situational, uh, what I call in the book, situational moral order that kind of defines how people understand corruption. And this tethers actually to a really uh, remarkable thing in my mind, which is uh, I mentioned earlier that Clive was sent back. To India as an anti-corruption crusader. He was sent back, uh, his quotation is, he was sent back to clean out the Augean stables. Uh, He thought that the East India Company administration had grown sort of hopelessly corrupt in his absence, and so the court of directors sent him back to clean it up. But what's really remarkable to me is that Uh, What made the administration horribly corrupt, Clive thought and the director's thought and other administrators who used a situational moral order thought, is not that people were taking presents. They called them presents at the time. Today, we would just call them bribes. It wasn't the fact that they were doing that. It was that they were taking presents um, in a way uh, that uh, was exaggerated for their station. They were taking bribes and gifts uh, as lowly junior officers in the East India Company that uh, were too large, were too, uh, that represented them getting above their station and violating this carefully calibrated status hierarchy within the East India Company. So what what's fascinating again, this might sort of perk up the ears of, of, a, of a listener today, is not that Clive Clive did not think that taking what we would call bribes today was wrong. What he thought was wrong was doing so in a way that was above your station, was above your kind of location in this hierarchy. And uh, I think that ties very well into into the note about being astonished at his own moderation, because later his criticism of other company officials, is that they were immoderate, that they lost control of their own greed. And so for him, corruption was that kind of loss of balance among your sort of desire for esteem among your friends, and then your quite understandable desire to get rich and be able to retire with a villa at home in England.
1: So you note that you note that Clive takes all his money and tries mm. to get involved in British politics, um, as you know, to protect his own station. Um, how does the UK, or how do politicians in Britain, how do people in Britain, kind of, I guess, understand and 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 receive Clive's, I guess, nouveau re status? There there are a couple of quite rude political cartoons that you uh, include in your book. Um, uh, on, on both, I think on, on multiple, t- taking multiple angles on this. Um, but, but, but how, how is this, how does this debate play out in, 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 in the UK? And then how does that start leading to these changing views of corruption that, that you talk about?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question because I, I think that's really the explanatory heart of the book. Um, I think that, uh, to, to put it directly, uh, the understanding of corruption and and the way that corruption was thought of in British politics in the 18th century was very much in flux. So um, there were very recognizably modern understandings of what corruption was. So, um, for example, there's been some great work done on the excise administration and the um, Things like uh, victualling in the Navy and the Admiralty, uh, where it turns out that in these relatively small parts of the British state, you have relatively modern understandings of it being wrong for you to shave money off the top of a contract or something like that. However, in other parts of the British administration, uh, it is still quite common for you to uh, take a major post as, say, um, uh, you know, so, uh, some kind of major contracting clerk or something like that as a lord and then literally just take the money from that position and hire someone else to do your job for you. Likewise, in British politics, Um, this was still the era of what by the early part of the 19th century would be re would be sort of relabeled old corruption, which is to say, um, this was a system where people would literally purchase the votes, of uh, the constituents in their parliamentary seats. There were these so-called rotten boroughs, uh, which were these very small old uh, parliamentary constituencies that had, say a dozen voters in them. And what you would do what they would do is literally auction the parliamentary seat. So that we're still very far away when, uh, from what we, from what we would call anything like a modern democratic process on that count. Now, on top of this, uh, you're quite right to use the term nouveau riche for someone like Clive. And in fact, there was a whole class of East India administrators who got enriched just like Clive did, although to, to a somewhat less spectacular extent. And collectively, these people came to be derisively called nabobs. Uh, that's actually where the English term nabobs comes from. Um, in American English, you probably would have only heard of this if you've heard uh, Spiro Agnew, the Richard Nixon's vice president, spoke of the nattering nabobs of negativism. Uh, but in 18th century Britain, it was meant as a pejorative uh, for the term nevab, which is a, a, a Mughal noble. And so this is, in essence, a racist pejorative that attaches the kind of signification of people having been corrupted by participation in Mughal society and then returning and bringing that kind of corruption with them into British politics. And, of course, part of this is just sour grapes. This is... um, an old elite reacting to the appearance of a new elite that's participating on their, that's uh, sort of taking them on on their own turf. But it's also the case that this is um, an instance where uh, race and then the, the moral freight of these two being two very different societies really matters because of another, Uh, sort of understanding of corruption that's floating around here is that uh, people can be corrupted not just by bribes, not just by wealth, but also by power. Uh, I think it's Acton who said, uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the idea here is that the Mughal Empire uh, represented what at the time was called Oriental despotism, which is to say it represented a kind of political organization that didn't have British liberty Right. Which is to say it didn't have the kinds of understandings of personal freedom and personal capability that were seen as being so politically, but also morally important in British society. And of course, You might you might note that it's that understanding of corruption of this sort of tyrannical loss of understanding of the the nature of the moral nature of British society that uh, intertwined with the same period I'm talking about leads to the American Revolution.
1: Um, So, as you note in the kind of your your first answer. Part of this too is the East India Company kind of moving from being a commercial enterprise to being something a lot more, um, like a lot more political, a lot more kind of quasi state like. Um, How does that transformation also link into this conversation about corruption?
0: Oh, of course. Um, So uh, it links very directly because part of what's happening uh, during this period is that the East India Company. Is supporting different claimants to uh, different parts of the Mughal Empire. So, like a classic early modern empire, there's not a central, there is a Mughal emperor, but the Mughal emperor practically rules through a bunch of subordinates who uh, govern sort of different states in different parts of the empire. And also over the period where the East India Company is coming into ascendancy, the Mughal Empire is also getting weaker and weaker. And as happens in these periods, uh, when uh, empires kind of fall apart, administrators end up sort of saying, well, I'm going to stop paying attention to what the emperor is telling me and I'm going to kind of strike out in my, on my own as a kind of little king. And so the East India Company, and it, importantly, kind of factions within the East India Company start striking side deals with these kind of mini spin off rulers. And as that happens, they're also continuing to trade right So uh, Indian Indian uh, cotton is still incredibly important in this in this period. Many other different trade goods are being sent back home. And so the East India Company says, well, this is really cool that we've stuck we've struck this side deal basically as a state with this, uh, say, the Nawab of Bengal, and a key thing that we're going to ask the Nawab to do is give us a tax exemption, right? So basically, because we've allied our military and supported the Nawab of Bengal in his claim to the throne, in return from that, we as the company are going to ask that he not tax any of our commerce, which is an increasingly large part of what's going on in Bengal in that period. But then, of course, certain administrators within the company start saying to themselves, Oh, the East India Company has always given us an allowance to kind of trade on the side and make our own money. Well, what we'd like to do is start using this tax exempt status for our own personal trade. And the East India, uh, certain East India Company administrators start saying things like, well, yeah, it's true we can all, we all have been customarily allowed to do this, but what you're doing is this gigantic volume of trade that isn't really how this is intended and it's threatening the overall east india company's trade plus the Nawab is starting to complain that he's got random european traders who are simultaneously trading on their own accounts but then also officers for the east india company running around bengal abusing his tax officers so what ends up happening? What I what I hope you can see is that it's the intertwining of these state like and commercial like things in the context of the transition of the East India Company to to a state like power that create this almost perpetual corruption scandal within the east india company administration so they're constantly administrators arguing with one another about who is corrupt and on what terms
1: and and i guess is that is that why you see kind of this this time period in india as kind of at least one of the points if not the point where you then see as you say this kind of modern view of corruption really take hold i guess it's like it's like it's like what why why is this period india kind of one of the exemplar moments of this if not the exemplar moment of this of this shift
0: i mean that's a great question and and there are really two answers um so the first one is uh relates to the problem of studying corruption historically so by definition corruption in any period, whether it's situational, whether it's universal, is not necessarily something people are going to want to talk about and document really carefully. Um, So it's by nature, something people want to hide. And so, one choice, one reason I chose the East India Company is, you know, I, I was studying other aspects of it uh, earlier on and then noticed there's just so, there are so many accusations of corruption flying back and forth. And people seem so confused about what it is that this seemed like a, a, a wonderfully rich terrain to explore the larger question of how we shift from the situational to this universal mode. But also you're quite right that the East India company is a crucial place where this shift happened. Um, This gets a little into the weeds of uh of of what they call historiography in the business which is just how people make how historians argue about the sort of meta explanations that they're making but um there's a lot of debate about where modern bureaucratic administrations come from and the timing of when they emerge Broadly speaking, there's a school of historians who want to push that emergence way early in history, back into, uh, particularly in Europe, into the medieval period, uh, all the way back to ancient imperial China, as another example. But there's a second class of historians, which I would broadly uh, count myself in, who uh, who like to emphasize uh, how what we think of as a modern bureaucracy is really a comparatively recent development in the United States. And in Britain, it it pretty much dates to the second half of the 19th century. And uh, one of the reasons that this relates to the East India Company is that the major bureaucratic reform of the domestic British state that really bureaucratized it in a pretty decisive way, which is to say it shifted to if you wanted to become an administrator, you had to get paid a healthy salary that you could live on, you had to pass a competitive exam, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The act of parliament that did this in the middle of the 19th century was called the Northcote Trevelyan Report, or or the report that spurred the act of Parliament, was called the Northcote-Trevelyan Report. And Charles Trevelyan, who was the administrator responsible for authoring this report, started as a writer in the East India Company in the 1820s and 1830s, once this universal mode of corruption that I'm talking about had come to predominate within the company, and himself became something of an anti-corruption crusader, but was also a accused of corruption himself, and then goes uh, goes to an imperial career. He's Lord Lieutenant of Ireland for a little while, and then goes back to author one of the major domestic civil service reform reports uh, in, in Britain. And so the connection is, in other words, I'm saying that uh, the East India Company is so important because it exposes this material in a way that allows us to develop a kind of social scientific explanation of this shift from a situational to a universal idea of what corruption is, but then it also has a pretty important genealogical connection to how the british state administration develops and also of course the the east india company's civil service becomes the background backbone of the indian civil service which is still the sort of predominant federal uh federal civil service in in india and um allied in pakistan today and so uh just to to Finish this up, though, I I do want to clarify that I'm not um, proposing here that the East India Company, the English East India Company in India was the kind of big bang of universal understandings of corruption everywhere and for all time. But instead, I think it's a pretty historically important source, which also lets us see a much more general process up close.
1: So I, I guess to kind of to kind of wrap the conversation up and to bring us to the present day. You know, it's funny you, we're talking about some of these changes in views of corruption. Um the situational view of corruption, for example, and I admit my thought was uh you sure you sure some people still don't believe in that today. Um Clive's <laughs> okay, Clive's comments on moderation sound almost like exactly like a thing that Trump would say. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, yes. Um, and, and it's just, it's just like, so like, how, how do we still see these kind of like these, these debates between, um, or, or, or this tension, sorry, tension between universal and situational corruption, um, play out in in today's conversation. I mean, just, just to kind of pull an example that came to mind as we, as, as we were talking, you know, is it, I remember reading a lot of research on say business ethics when, when people act unethically in business. And the answer seems to be, it's not that people are kind of innately bad that they're just put in a bad situation and, that the context is such that they end up feeling like it's the only thing that they can do. Um but then but yeah so then then how I, yeah so then how, how is this tension between universal and situational corruption kind of still seen today?
0: Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question and I think it relates to the the modernity in modernity's corruption. Uh so Putting this very roughly, there are two different ways that you can think about the term modernity. You can think about it as a a period of time, which is to say, we live in the modern era. Or uh, you can think about it as a sort of set of orientations to living in the world. We are pursuing a modern lifestyle and i think one of the one of the really crucial but also really generative ambiguities in modernity is that those two senses of the term collapse into each other quite often and i think that that collapse leads to a a conceit that I am uncomfortable with and that conceit is, well, once you've gotten to the modern era, once you've achieved a modern lifestyle, you've made it. you've gotten to the to, to the end, you've gotten to where we all should be. And I think it's uh, much more productive to think of uh, of being modern as uh, a fragile kind of, institutional accomplishment. So what I mean by that, and, and let me bring this back down to earth, yeah, I I have exactly the same reaction with Trump. I think that Trump is basically a man out of time in the sense that he's acting a lot like an early modern sort of situational actor. And because of that, and because our modern legal and political institutions are oriented towards this controlling corruption it understood as it is understood in these much more universal terms, there's just this category error with a lot of people who say, well, Trump is just so obviously corrupt, by XYZ definition. But the problem with that, of course, is that if you're a situationalist, there are many different situations where his behavior could be appropriate. And then also, even if you have this universal definition of of what corruption is, somebody could look at some aspect of any of our lifestyles and point at that and credibly say well, that's a little iffy. Why'd you you choose to do that? And by consequence, I think that the challenge for those of us who don't want corrupt actors running around is to understand that just pure legal definitions or statutes or anything like that are not going to come save us in this instance. Instead, I think the job is to assertively say morally what kind of society we want to live in, why that is a good thing, and then really concretely tether that to the the behavior of people that we think are good examples, but also point out how the behavior of somebody like Trump or the behavior of people on the modern Supreme Court or the behavior of people who purchase uh, sports scholarships for their children in order to get into elite colleges, why that is wrong and why that is corrupt.
1: So I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Nick Wilson, author of Minority's Corruption, um, Empire and Morality in the Making of British India. Um, But Nick, I actually have two final questions for you, uh, which are, where can people find your work? Not just this book, but all your work. And number two, what what's next for you? What might the next project be?
0: Oh, thank, thank you for those two questions. Uh, so you can buy this book wherever fine books are sold, including Amazon, but you can find it also on my publisher's website which is Columbia University Press um and again the book is modernity's corruption empire and morality in the making of british india and uh i'm nick wilson but in public uh on the book it's nicholas hoover wilson uh and then my uh to what I'm working on next. Um, So uh, I'm doing a bunch of work on uh, the philosophy and sociology of science right now, and particularly the relationship of history to the social sciences uh, over the course of the 20th and early 21st centuries. But also uh, more directly tied to this project, I've gotten really interested in the resemblance of uh, the, the model of thinking about situational and universal corruption that I propose in the book, uh, the resemblance of that model to um, some stuff going on that went on in the history of the United States. Uh, so I think the next couple of sort of concrete, substantive projects I'll be working on is one related to machine politics. So uh, Tammany Hall and these famous uh, corruption scandals in large American cities at the turn of the 20th century, which I think uh, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm hypothesizing, are going to work in, in relatively similar ways. And then second, uh, I'm beginning a study of the American Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is now part of the Department of the Interior in the United States. And it's responsible for the interface of uh, the American federal government with the a very large number of treaty indigenous peoples, tribal entities within the United States who have signed treaties with the federal government over the course of American history. And this uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs is the arm of the federal government responsible for dealing with those groups. And I'm interested in the fact that there are One of the oldest federal agencies, along with the United States Post Office, they were one of the first ones founded in the New American Republic. And then also that they're one of the most notoriously corrupt agencies in the government.
1: So You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow them on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on all of your podcast apps Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Reyes. Recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, Join us for a conversation with Samrat Chowdhury, author of Northeast India, A Political History. But before then, Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure.